Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. If you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle, or go, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, today I have Gary Klein, PhD. He's the president of a Shadow Box LLC. Uh, he's authored books such as Sources of Power, How People Make Decisions, and uh, four other books. And he's co-edited uh, several volumes as well. So uh, his website is shadowboxtraining.com. And uh, from his videos, I thought he was a really interesting person with uh, interesting area of study. So welcome, Gary. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Tell me, how would you uh, encapsulate what you do? What's your uh, work about? Uh, my work is about trying to understand how people make very difficult decisions under time pressure and uncertainty. And I've been wondering about that and studying that uh, for several decades. And I've had a, a, the good fortune of being able to study People in a variety of settings, firefighters, law enforcement, nurses, emergency department, uh, physicians and clinicians, pilots, and so forth. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, are there any stories that uh, you remember from a long time ago that intrigued you and got you into the field? Or like, had you first gained this interest? How did I first get interested in it? I just had a sense that the standard models of decision-making were not fitting the, the environments that, that I was familiar with. I was working for the Air Force at the time at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And I was looking at these models of decision-making that said, the only good way to make a decision is set out a, a variety of different options and evaluate them on a, on a common set of criteria to see which comes out uh, on top. And I said, pilots don't have the time to do that. 
So I wondered, what are they doing? What could, what can people do when they're under that kind of time pressure with uncertain situations? So that's, that's really, that was the curiosity that got me started. Yeah, I think, I think we've all maybe looked at the Ben Franklin way of uh, making a decision. You know, you take a piece of paper and you draw a line and put pros on one side and cons on the other. But, uh, you know, the decision-making you're studying is obviously much faster, higher pressure, et cetera. So, I mean, what are, the, what are some of the facets that make high-pressure decisions difficult? Is it the time? Is the, again, the pressure, the, the consequences? What are they? It's all of those things. But if anything stands out, it's the fact that the people who are usually put in a situation where they have to make those kinds of uh, tough decisions, they're usually high-stakes decisions, and you have people who are experienced making the decisions. So the, the, the most difficult factor is getting, uh, gaining the experience and building the expertise to be able to handle those kinds of conditions. Uh, is there a way to train yourself or there, react better to decisions under pressure, or is it just do it, put yourself in that situation? Uh, unfortunately, for most people, it's put yourself in the situation, hope for the best, and hope that over time you'll build an experience base. That's that's not very satisfactory. There are things that, that individuals can do if you want to improve your own skill and build your own expertise more quickly. One of the things you can do is um, just keep track of your tough decisions, whether they turned out well or poorly, and then reflect on them afterward and consider what you might have done, what you should have been thinking about, and you know maybe you know go to to more experienced colleagues and see how they would have handled it. Another thing you can do is go to those experienced colleagues and talk to them about some of their tough decisions and see what you can learn from them. And um, what we have done and, and my colleagues have done is developed a technique called shadow box, which is a way to train people to uh, gain decision-making skills more quickly. And, and that, that's been the focus of our work for the last six years. Yeah, tell me about the shadow box method. How does it work? Okay, the way it works is you come up with a scenario and it's a challenging scenario. And I walk you through the scenario, but then I interrupt it at certain points. And I say, at this point, you've got four different options. Rank order them in terms of what you would choose first, second, third, or fourth, and write down your reason. Then we turn the crank, we continue the scenario. And it's just it's not just about options. We might say for the next decision point, your three goals, which is the, which one is the most important, rank order them in terms of their importance, write down the reason you rank them that way. Then we continue on. Here's five different cues, pieces of information that you might be monitoring. Rank order how important they are. And you just go on like that through the scenario. But we've also had a small panel of experts, usually three to five experts. They've gone through the same scenario. They've done their ranking. They've written down their reasons. So after you do your ranking, we say, great, let's see what the experts ranked. And then you can compare your ranking with what the experts had. And you really want to rank them the same way the experts did. So that's the, the game-like uh, quality to shadow box. But more important than that, you get to see what the experts wrote down, what they were seeing that you hadn't written down that you weren't even aware of. So this is a way to have you see the world through the eyes of experts 
but the experts don't have to be there because they've already uh, given their rankings and their rationale. So they're not a bottleneck anymore. And so that, that's the way Shadowbox works. And we can do it face-to-face, you know, -face, you know, in facilitated sessions or with the pandemic, we, we do it online so that you don't have to worry about face-to-face uh, -face kinds of encounters. Yeah, but if I have, if I'm in a situation and let's say there's four factors and I rank them and the experts rank them differently, what about the explanation of why the experts rank them that way? Do they do a walkthrough and a talkthrough you know, in a given situation of what they did and why? That, that's why the experts write down uh, what their rationale was, why they ranked them the way they did, what they were seeing, what they were worrying about. And then so you're sort of getting their, their, their understanding and you compare it to your own and realize these experts, they're picking up on things that I didn't even think about. And that's how your mental model, your sophistication increases by seeing the world through their eyes. How much of a base knowledge in a particular area do you need so that the expert help actually helps you and doesn't just bewilder you? That's a great question. And we have to be careful about that. And, you know, if we have experts that are too far beyond, you know, your, your own capability, it's going to be difficult for you to, to make sense of, of, of what they're noticing. So we have to be careful about which experts we use and also how we edit their comments to make sure that it's accessible uh, to the trainees, to the people who want to improve. So what particular knowledge domains does this work really well? Like where do you have some really good examples? It works pretty well every time we try it. So we've used it with military decision-making. We're using it right now with law enforcement training uh, in California. We use it with uh, social workers, with child protective services. They've got to make really tough decisions. If they get a report that uh, uh, there might be a problem in a family, they've got to go out and investigate and make a decision. Do I leave a child with its, in, in its uh, home right now where it might be injured or even killed? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Or do I remove a child from it, from its family, from its mother? And those are really tough decisions. We've used it with panel operators at petrochemical plants. We're using it with financial managers and investment companies. Why do people seek out this training and what do they hope to gain from it? Great question. Uh, what they want to gain, first of all, they want to have, they want to have people in, in, in their group come up to speed more quickly so that they can do a good job and, and can operate independently more quickly and, uh, and, and more effectively. So it's about improving their expertise, but it's also about improving the quality of their decisions so that there are fewer mistakes that they make 
and also more insightful decisions that, that they're able to make. Third reason, especially with the pandemic, is to be able to put on training that doesn't require face-to-face -face interaction. And that's why we have the, the, the online capability uh, that, that we've developed. Uh, so those are, those are some of the, the major reasons that, that people seek us out. If someone's in a particular arena and they make, like, let's say they're a police officer and they have to make certain decisions, is, is the training only valuable to them if they contemplate police interactions or are there similar experiences that aren't necessarily, let's say, in police work that they still could benefit from? Like, are there, are there core situations that regardless of what someone does, the lessons apply and it will help them in whatever they do in their niche? That's a, a wonderful speculation, and I think that's the case. I think as you go through the, the thinking process of these experts, you're getting more skilled and more sophisticated, not just about police, but in general, as you realize, I need to think ahead. I need to try to anticipate more than, than, than I have been. I need to be aware of subtle cues that might have implications rather than just brushing them aside. So I think there might be some, some general decision-making skills that, that you might develop. Are there core experiences that no matter what someone does for a living or what situations they're in, uh, core experiences that will help them with decision-making that apply to many areas, not just their own area? Are there core experiences? It's possible. I don't have data on it, so I don't want to make claims that I can't back up. But I do have a, a, a sense that if people go through these kinds of scenarios and, and see the world the way the experts are, there are some general skills that they might develop, such as trying to anticipate more than, than simply reacting. Or they might be more sensitive to subtle cues, you know, uh, events that ordinarily they might have brushed off, but they might realize, hey, I, I think I know what's going on, but I could be wrong. And, you know, this, this piece of information is inconsistent with, with my belief. So instead of being so quick to discard it, let me see what it might imply. So there might be some habits that people could start to pick up that I think would help them generally. But again, I don't have research data to, to, to back that up. That's all right. Well, what are some of the hallmarks of bad decision making? Is it allowing yourself to be rushed? Is it, again, not thinking ahead and just reacting? Like, what are these hallmarks? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. One of the, one of the ways that, that, that interests us the most is when people think they know what's going on and it just sort of locks them into a belief that, yeah, I, I know what's happening here. And if the belief is right, then they're fine. But if the belief is wrong then some people know if the belief is wrong, then you're going to get some contradictory evidence. And uh, good decision makers pay attention to the contradictory evidence. The bad decision makers explain it away. They discard it because it's inconvenient. They fixate. They hold on to their initial belief, often until it's too late. So that's one of the, one of the, the, the major flaws that, that we see in decision makers. Is it hard to train very experienced people or do you tend to train rookies? You know, again, maybe like you gave the example of police, maybe nowadays because of everything going on, they need to act differently than they used to act. And if someone's like a 30 year veteran, 
is it impossible for them to change what they do or no? It's certainly not impossible for them to change, but, but you're right. It's easier when you work with people who are less experienced because they haven't, they, they, they haven't formulated, you know, such strong uh, ideas about what's supposed to happen. They don't have what's called negative transfer. Whereas now uh, uh, police are being asked to, to respond in different ways. And that's, um, that's really going against the instincts that they've built up over time. Uh, but it's not impossible for them to change. The, the major ingredient for them to change is for them to want to change, for them to realize that they're in a different environment now, that tolerance may be very different, that you have, all, uh, you have people with, uh, with, with, with smartphones, with cameras. So they're, you know, they're, they're being observed in a way that they weren't uh, early in their career. But, but even more than that, there's, there's just a, a sense of trying to reorient uh, the way they do business. Let me give you an example. One police officer that I interviewed as we were doing this work, he was, he was just a really solid police officer in terms of the way he was built. I mean, he was, he was really very, very well-muscled. His, you know, his, uh, his arms were, were, were thicker than, than my legs. And he said when he became a police officer, he, he wanted the action. He wanted to get bad guys. He wanted to arrest them. He, he didn't mind getting into fights because obviously he would win most of the fights. So he wanted the action and that worked for a while. But then he realized, first of all, even though he was winning most of the fights, it was taking a toll. It was damaging him. But also he was seeing other police officers. They could get civilians to do what they wanted without intimidating them, without uh, trying to fight them, without threatening them. And then he became curious, how are they doing it? And he tried to understand what are they doing? What are their tricks? Because he wanted to learn that. So he really remodeled himself in order to be a different police officer. One of the things he learned was to change his mindset. And before, if he wanted to get a civilian or even a, a, a criminal to do what he wants, he would get compliance by, by threatening them, by intimidating them. And he said, now, when he interacts with anybody, a, a civilian, even somebody he's arresting, he tries to carry himself so that that person will trust him more at the end of the encounter than at the beginning. And if that's your mindset, to carry yourself so that you're building trust through the way you interact with somebody, that, that, that's really going to accomplish a great deal. That, that's a, a major shift in mindset. And it means not only changing the mindset, but building the skills in order to get that kind of, uh, that kind of agreement and consent. So it sounds like you have like, a, I don't know if it's, is it one-on-one -on -one training? where they actively go through situations, you and a mentor, or is it recorded lessons where you're going through a simulation and a mentor is speaking to you at certain critical points? Like, how does this happen? Well, to, to make this all involve mentoring becomes prohibitively expensive uh, for, for organizations, whether they're police departments or social service agencies or petrochemical plants. So the mentoring is accomplished by having uh, the, the experts go through the scenarios on their own, 
record their, how they would handle each of the options and what their reasons are, what they were noticing, and then capturing that and synthesizing that and present it at, presenting it as training material so that the mentors do not have to be present. And that could be done one-on-one uh, -on -one, or you can have groups of people who get uh, to, to do this in, uh, together in a, in a classroom or in an online session. And then they get to see uh, what, what, the, what the experts had, uh, had considered and had noticed. Um, are there, like, what is an advanced level of this training look like? Do you, do you only have one level or do you have like, you know, beginner, intermediate, intermediate, advanced, and do you have add-on modules or methods? For many situations, we're developing add-on modules to, to make the, the scenarios more difficult. But the real add-on occurs when we start to move the, the, the training from the people on the front line to their supervisors so that the supervisors can now uh, observe in a different way and work and, 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 and mentor themselves uh, with the people underneath them. So I think the, 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 the real next step is, devel is developing the training for, for, for supervisors, for field training officers and, 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 and so forth. One of the things we find is in many organizations, you have people who are in supervisory positions who think that I've got to train the people underneath me and their mindset for training is I've got to catch people making mistakes and then correct the mistakes. And so they're always criticizing the people underneath them because they're continually looking for mistakes. And the good, the, the, the mindset shift we try to create for supervisors to make them more effective as, as, as trainers is if somebody makes a mistake, instead of reaming them out or telling them what they should have done, you can be curious. Why did they make that mistake? How are they uh, sizing up the situation? Because people don't want to mis make mistakes if they don't have to. So this is an opportunity to learn uh, where, th where their thinking is going wrong. So what, what are some of the metrics of the outcomes? Like for the police, did they, you know, I don't know if you could say, but what do they specifically want? How do they measure it? How do they know that you know Bob or Jane is making better decisions now? Right. So the the best measure is one that we haven't had a chance to to use with the police is to show that they do a better job out on the street, and that's going to take a lot of data and and a lot of time. But in the meantime, the way we evaluate performance, one way we evaluate it is by seeing how do the trainees line up. With the, with the subject matter experts when, when they go through the scenarios. And the research we've done shows that uh, they're matching the experts by an increase of 20, 25%, almost 30% more of a match to the expert at the end of even a half day of training than at the beginning. A second way we evaluate whether the training is having any effect is we have various kinds of scales for looking at the mindset that, uh, that the trainee has and seeing if the mindset changes from the beginning to the end. So those are some of the measures that we use. Was the police example pretty straightforward? And do you have any other examples that you think would be instructive for the listener? You know, was, I don't know. Um, I've heard, for instance, let's say media training for corporate people. You know, they may be confronted by a news reporter that's aggressive 
um, they may be called in front of you know a board and have to testify or whatever it is, and they have to respond. Have you done any media training with people? Is that a scenario in which these decisions are important, or is there crisis management, or like what other areas are interesting? I think that would be a great area. We haven't done that. We we certainly could. We could have scenarios involving hostile questions uh, from the media. Uh, we also have a version of shadow box that's video based, so we can show we we, uh, we can have like role players come in and 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 play the role of. Uh, of, of hostile uh, interviewers and um, stop the scenario at certain parts. And you can say, okay, at this point, here's what I'm taking away. And here's what I, uh, here's what response I think I should make. And then you can see what more media savvy uh, colleagues uh, have put down how, how they would respond. So that's one thing that's possible. Another intervention, that we're we're hoping to, to to put into place involves investment managers and a lot of their decisions involve downside risk. I don't want to make an investment that could fail, but we're also we're, we're discovering that their managers care a lot about upside risk, about people who are so frightened to make the wrong decision that they're passing up opportunities and, and losing a chance to, to make good investments. So we, we can provide them with, uh, with opportunities to, to assess investments and, and look at the pros as well as the cons. Do you do anything for um, like teenagers or children or conflict management, like interpersonal relationship type stuff? It's, I guess it's kind of like marriage counseling in a way, but do you do any of that stuff or is there no call for it? We would do it, but so far we haven't been called upon to, to get into, into that arena. But I think we might have something to offer there as well. If we could find good experts who could go through these scenarios, whether it's a, a written kind of scenario or a video scenario, and be willing to, to inject their own, their own reactions and their own observations. So for us, a lot depends on the availability of credible experts that we can use as ground truth. Are there any stories of, of scenarios that really, I don't know, they just stick out to you, whether amazing or unusual? There are many scenarios that stick out as amazing or unusual. There's one that comes to mind. We were training facilitators in child protective service, and we had a scenario where there was a, a, a couple with some children, and... Um, there was, as you got the initial information, there was some background information on, on the mother and also on her live-in boyfriend. And, you know, the live-in boyfriend, you know, way back in the past, there had been some incidents with uh, sexual impropriety. And, uh, you know, but it, it, you, you, uh, he was asked about it and he said, oh, that was a, a long time ago. And yeah, uh, that, that was... I, she was, you know, the, the girl was just about 16 or 17 years old. I didn't realize she was under the age of 18. So that, that's why I got into trouble. That's why you've got that in the record. So, okay, the scenario goes on. And, and the people in the room who were the facilitators, they, they were going to be facilitating shadow box training with people underneath them. They took it at face value and they said, okay, you know, this looks like a good couple and uh, everything was looking good. 
But then when their responses were matched to the expert, the experts were saying from the very beginning, wait a second, you know, there, there, there was an incident involving the sexual impropriety. Uh, I want to get more information about that. I'm just, I'm, I'm not willing to take that person's word for it. And the people in the room that we were training, they were shaking their head, you know, why, did, why, why are these experts so persnickety? But this was based on a real incident. And what turned out was uh, the incident did not involve an underage teenager who was 16 or 17. It, it involved a, a child under the age of three, and that this person had had you know been been, uh, been been found guilty of molestation. And at the moment that that was being discovered, he was in he was in the other room diapering. <laughs> a one and a half year old that the, that the woman had. And when that came out, everybody in the room went silent. And it was like you could feel their brains rewiring and you could feel them saying, okay, I'm never gonna go down. I'm never gonna miss that kind of a cue again. I'm gonna be much more sensitive than I was. So you, you could feel hmm. their brains changing at that instant. It was amazing. Do you ever have people train before they ever have to engage in a given experience? You know, like if I'm, uh, let's say I'm going to be a police officer uh, or I'm going to work for CPS, I know they do training before they ever go out into the field, but do they ever do training with you before they go out into the field where they haven't even gone through the experience yet, but they're, they're trained in this way? We are trying to set that up. We, we haven't gotten in that situation yet. And what people tell us, let's, let's take law enforcement. They say, you've got to, you know, learn the basics. You have to learn the basic procedures for how to um, put handcuffs on or how to get information. You have to learn all of these uh, procedures. You got to get that down before you can start thinking about decision-making. We don't agree. We think to some extent they have to learn those basics. And until they get enough mastery of the basics, they're not going to be able to think about the bigger picture. But early on, even during, when, when they're in the academy, you can start hitting them with decision-making dilemmas around the procedures that they're learning so that they can start uh, contextualizing the training rather than trying to add on the decision-making piece afterwards, because that, that's just too slow, too inefficient. How fast do these skills decay? You know, if I'm at, uh, again, a police station and you guys came in and did the shadow boxing, and now it's a year later, do I need to refresh my skills? Like, how often do I need to do this? It's another great question, and we don't have data on how quickly the skills decay, but we do have uh, anecdotal evidence that some of these experiences, particularly if they're, if they're vivid and emotional, they stick with people. I'll give you an example. We once did some training with, with ambulance drivers. And the, the problem that this, organiza that this uh, organization was having is their ambulance drivers, they were too gung-ho and they were taking risks. And the managers were unhappy that they were taking risks. We were called in because there had been an incident where two of them had died. They had gone into a an unsafe situation because they, they, they knew that there were people inside. They wanted to rescue the people and they lost their life. And then the third one, before he went in, he paused and he realized that, that it was too dangerous. 
So we were called in to try to change their mindset and convince them that management did not want them to take those kinds of risks. So uh, we had two days of training to try to change the mindset and show them where management uh, lined up. And then we heard anecdotally, and again, this is just an anecdote, we don't have data, uh, that several months later, somebody had contacted the person who set up the training and he said, you know, I was in a situation and somebody needed me and I was about to go charging in. And just before I did, it flashed through my mind that I remembered that, that uh, workshop that I had gone through. And I said, let me not go uh, be too headstrong in here. Let me investigate a little bit before I go in. And if he had gone in, he probably would have been injured and, po and, and possibly killed. So that, that popped into his head uh, months after the, the training was done. Are there certain uh, personality types that do well with this kind of training and ones that just it backfires or hurts them or makes them over-conservative? I don't think we, we want to make people too afraid of making mistakes. And, and I think that's a problem in many organizations. They have a mindset that they have like a zero tolerance for errors and that paralyzes people and makes them afraid to, to try things out. So we, we, you know, that's why I talked before about upside risks, about the, the risks of not acting, about the risks of, of being too timid. So we, we try to have scenarios that, that balance one way or the other. Uh, are there people with the, the wrong kinds of personalities here? I, we, we occasionally find people who just are resistant to training because they think they already know it. And so they, they don't want to, to be challenged. They don't want to have to uh, expose themselves to new kinds of mindsets or new kinds of ideas. And, and, and so they, they are just so resistant that they, they can't take advantage of training opportunities. Okay. Well, very good. Gary, um, so again, what kinds of organizations are you guys looking for to help? What's like a list of ones that would qualify for individuals? Uh, frankly, we find that this kind, uh, the kind of expertise that we're talking about uh, generalizes across the board. So we're looking, we're looking for organizations that are in pain, where they know that the way they're doing business isn't working for them. And so that there is an openness to try something innovative, not just for, for, the, for the managers, but for the people on the front line, realizing that they need to be more effective. So that's, that's probably the, the, the prime kind of audience we're, we're looking for. We want people with in, in organizations where they're worried that maybe um, some of the personnel burn out too quickly. So they're, they're, they're never staying long enough to develop expertise. And I think the burnout is because they don't think they're coming up to speed quickly enough. And this is a way to give people more confidence that either they, they are getting better or they can get better and that there are ways for them to get better. So those are the criteria for the organizations we're, we're looking for. Okay, very good. And what's the website again or where should they go, Gary? Uh, the website is uh, shadowboxtraining.com. Okay, very good. Gary, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been very interesting to talk to you. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.